Well, it's good to see everybody today. Um, we are starting a uh, new series called This is Love that will be leading right into Easter. I want to encourage you, invite your friends Easter Sunday. Invite your family. Let's, let's have a bunch of people in here. Let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus and see people saved. Let's and then afterwards, we're going to be uh, doing water baptisms. We're going to be recognizing our new members. It's going to be an amazing Sunday. And so make sure that you are inviting your friends. There's, uh, there's uh, invite cards out there at the kids' check-in. They're already in bags, so you can just take like five of them and, and, and uh, pass them out to your coworkers, friends, family, all of that stuff. Uh, but uh, it's going to be awesome. And uh, it's going to be awesome because of you guys. Amen? So let's, let's, uh, let, let's do this. I'm excited about this. I'm going to talk about marriage today. Uh, it's going to be good. And I want to say sometimes when you say marriage, all the single people kind of check out and say, this isn't for me. But, uh, you know, if you are planning to be married at some point, okay, if you don't plan to stay single for the rest of your life, uh, these things can really apply to you. So uh, my subtitle today is God's Vision for Marriage. Uh, Priscilla and I will be celebrating 11 years of marriage in August. Uh, it's, flown, it's flown by. It seems like yesterday we were getting married in San Antonio, but uh, we're about to celebrate our 11 years. And we met in 2002 back in Bible school, but uh, it was definitely not love at first sight for us. Uh, when I first met Priscilla, she was 18 years old. I was 19 years old, and for whatever reason, she was just annoying to me. Um, she, I don't, she came across, you know, she's totally not like this, and she's not here. She might get mad at me, but she came across a little bit airheaded when I first met her. I, 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 I don't know why. And so I, it was definitely not love at first sight, and she probably had all of these feelings towards me as well. And uh, so, so we, in fact, the first time we ever, we ever talked, we had coffee with one another, and uh, I, I, I told her I didn't think little girls drank coffee. And so we, I just did not start off on a good foot with Priscilla, but as I got to know her, I realized that this initial idea I had about her was completely false. And so a few months after we uh, met and... Uh, I started seeing her heart and having conversations with her. I ended up starting to have feelings for Priscilla, but then I found out she had feelings for someone else in our school. And so uh, it wasn't until our second year of school that, uh, I, that she started, she came to her senses like the Bible says, <laughs> like the prodigal son while he was in the pig pen, he came to his senses and said, why am I living in this pig pen when I could be living in my father's house? And she realized... Man, I could have this, and, and I'm, I, you know what I'm saying? And so she came, no, I'm just kidding. I came to my senses. And uh, no, we both, you know, I found out she started liking me, and so we started developing a friendship. And we started out with a friendship, getting to know each other. I started, uh, uh, I started, you know, hearing her heart about what she wanted to do with her life and about what her values and convictions are and all that. So we started developing a friendship, a connection. We started figuring out what we were called to do and all of those things. And so 
once we graduated from Bible college, I moved to San Antonio to be a part of a, a church planting team there, and she moved to Belfast, Northern Ireland, to be a part of a church planting team there. And so every uh, we would talk every couple of weeks, but to be honest, we were both really, really busy in what we were doing. And so, uh, you know, we kept in contact and all that. And so after about six months, she uh, ended up... Uh, being finished with what she was doing in Ireland, and she ended up moving back to San Antonio. And so we started, you know, getting a little bit more serious, and we ended up starting to date in San Antonio, and we dated for uh, about a year and two months, and then I popped the question on Valentine's Day. Uh, I was very original, and uh, popped the question on Valentine's Day, and then we were engaged for about six months and then got married in August of 2008. And I can honestly say that the best decision that I ever made uh, outside of, of, of following Jesus Christ is when I said I do to Priscilla. She is an amazing woman. She is an amazing mother. She is an amazing wife. She is an amazing leader. And uh, I am so blessed to be married to my best friend. Uh, but what I have learned through the last decade plus of marriage is that any relationship, and especially a married relationship, it is a work in progress. I'll be the first to admit I don't know everything there is to know about marriage, not even close. I don't have a perfect marriage. Priscilla and I still have things that we struggle, we're struggling through. We still have arguments and disagreements. Uh, and and she, she is, uh, she is uh, Latina, so they get heated real quickly. <laughs> things escalate very quickly in my household. Uh, but, but, but we're a work in progress. And, and every year, every month, every week, every day, uh, the goal is not to have a perfect marriage. It's to become more and more like Jesus. And as we become more and more like Jesus, we love each other the way we're supposed to love each other. Amen? And so let me say this. This message is about marriage, but it is very important for single people to hear this because if you get what I'm sharing with you today, it will save you a ton of heartbreak and heartache and disappointment when you are ready to get married and you are ready to get into that relationship where it's heading towards marriage. And so this is a message for everybody. This is not just a message for married people. Amen? All right. So most people have no clue what marriage is for. If you ask a man what the reason marriage is for, he'll most likely say sex. It, <laughs> Let's just be real up in here. If you ask a woman, depending on who she is, what marriage is for, she'll probably say companionship or friendship or something like that. If you ask that same man, is there anything else? What else is marriage for? He'll probably look at you and say, sex? <laughs> you know what I mean? So most people don't have any clue what marriage is for. And here's what we all need to understand. God created marriage at the same time he created everything else on the earth, okay? Genesis 1 is the creation account. We're going to go all the way to the beginning. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can look up at the screen and read along. And it says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Very simple. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then from here we see everything God created during each 
day. In verses 3 and 4, God creates light, and it says that God saw that light was good. In verses 9 and 10, God separates the land from the seas and saw that it was good. Then in verses 11 and 12, God creates trees and land that produces vegetation and saw that it was good. And hang with me for a minute. I'm going somewhere with this. In verses 14 through 18, God creates the stars and the moon and sun and saw that it was good. In verses 20 and 21, he created sea creatures and birds and saw that it was good. In verses 24 and 25, he created the animals and saw that it was good. So you can see up to this point, everything was all good in the creation story. And it remained all good until God created Adam. So we're going to flip over to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. Everything in creation was good except that Adam was alone. Okay? Do you see that? Adam was hardwired for relationships. And it was God that created Adam to be this way. You and I are hardwired for relationships. Okay? There is some, something inside of us th that desires to be known okay, and to belong. There's something inside of each one of us that desires this in our life. And so God tells Adam that he's going to make a helper who is just right for him. And so we're going to be uh, looking at Genesis 2, 21 through 25. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The first marriage in history was officiated by God himself. This is why in the Christian worldview, we believe that God gets to define what marriage is and isn't. Not us, not me, not you. Okay? Not Hollywood, not culture. It is God who defines marriage because he is the one who created it. When you create something, you get to define what it is and isn't. You get to define the parameters of it. Amen? Yeah. And so when you start creating something, you get to say, so I create, well, God created, but me and Priscilla created our kids. So I get to define the boundaries of what my kids can and cannot do. Nobody gets to come into my home and tell my kids what they can and cannot do. It's, it's the responsibility of me and Priscilla because her and I, coupled with God, we birthed these things, these people, these little pieces of dynamite that we love. John Mark Comer, in his book, Loveology, says this about verse 24 where it says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. And he says this, The closing line is an interpolation in the original language. It's almost like God's voice cuts into the story. It's the creator's way of saying, Listen up. Pay attention. 
This marriage is a paradigm for all marriages. It's not a one-off. It's a template for all marriages to follow. Think about it. Adam didn't have a father or mother to leave. And Eve didn't have any other options. But the story is written in such a way as to make the reader slow down and take notice. This story is ground zero for a theology of marriage. If marriage is the example that God used for the church's relationship to Jesus, because in the, in the scriptures we are called the bride of Christ, then shouldn't our marriages be thriving? Shouldn't our marriages be healthy? Shouldn't our marriages be a reflection of Christ in this world? Our churches should be full of healthy marriages. In fact, the church should have the healthiest marriages in all of the world. Sadly, that's not the case many times. Starting with the pastor and moving through the congregation. I've known several pastors that, man, it doesn't even feel like they like their spouse. And I'm thinking, how can you be an example to the rest of your congregation when you treat your wife that way? Or wife, when you treat your husband that way. How many of you know someone who loves the Lord but is divorced? I know lots of people. Okay? How many of you know someone who loves the Lord but they cheated on their spouse or were cheated on by their spouse? I know lots of people in that way. How many of you know a couple whom both of them love Jesus but, sometime, but most of the time they don't love each other? They're struggling. They have a toxic relationship. They have an unhealthy relationship at home. But they both are committed Christians. I know people like that. How many of you know someone who loves the Lord, but they married someone who doesn't love the Lord? Here's what I believe, okay? The church, and when I say church, I mean the capital C, should have the healthiest, most thriving marriages in the world. Okay? The divorce rate in the, sh in the church should be 0% if both parties are doing it God's way. Okay? The problem is that most people in the church don't know why God created marriage. Okay? They don't have a real vision for marriage. They don't know what the purpose of marriage is for. They get their idea about marriage from culture. They get it from movies. They get it from uh, romance novels. They get it from TV shows. They get it from people in their lives that tell them this is what marriage is for. And so they have no idea what marriage is for. They have no vision for marriage. And I think the biggest lie that Hollywood has taught us about marriage and romantic relationships is that they're supposed to meet all of our needs. Marriage is supposed to meet all of my needs, all of my sexual needs, all of my emotional needs, all of my physical needs. That marriage is for me and for my needs to be met. And I think that's the biggest lie that Hollywood has taught us. And we have believed that lie and we have lived out that lie. And that's why we have a whole culture of unhealthy, toxic marriages. You see, we believe the lie that marriage, that person, that one, it's, they are supposed to complete us. They are supposed to make us whole. It, that's so sweet, but it's just not true. We think the purpose of marriage is to make me happy. Don't we? While marriage can make us happy and should make us happy, that cannot be our ultimate reasoning to get married or we'll be disappointed 100% of the time. I think many Christians struggle 
in their marriages because they don't know God's vision for their marriage. And so let's talk about marriage today. And so I want to talk about five things that marriage uh, is, but I, I'm not going to be able to get through all five. I'm just getting through two today, and we'll continue it next week. And so we're going to talk about what in the world is marriage for? What in the world is marriage for? So number one, marriage is for companionship. Marriage is for companionship. Marriage is that is, is for the opportunity to, for you to do life with your best friend, okay? Your spouse should be your ride or die, okay? That, that's, that's who your spouse should be, okay? Genesis 2.18 says that God said that it was not good for man to be alone. Like I mentioned earlier, we are all hardwired for connection and relationship. But why are we hardwired this way? It's because we are made in the image of God. And even God himself is made up of not one person or two persons, but three persons. Okay? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We serve a communal God. And, and, and God is not alone. He is a Father, He is a Son, and He is a Spirit. And they all love each other, and they all work together uh, to fulfill the purpose of bringing mankind to relationship with Him through the body of Christ. If God is not alone, then it only makes sense that you and I are not alone, right? Because we are made in the image and likeness of God, the Creator. Have you ever heard someone say, all I need is God. I don't need anybody else. I can't trust anybody else. All I need is Jesus. Me and Jesus and we're good. That sounds, that sounds good. That sounds confident. But honestly, it's not fully true because... God created us to need relationship. God created us to need community. Now, we can't make human relationships or marriage the ultimate thing, but you and I, we were, we were created for fellowship and community. Because if you think about it, think about this. Adam, he was created by God. He was in what they called paradise, and he had God. He had unbroken fellowship with God. He had a communication. He had a level of intimacy with God that you and I just don't have. He walked with God in the garden. He spoke to God. It was just him and God. And despite this, God still said, it is not good for Adam to be alone. We were created for relationship. We were created for community. Now, this doesn't automatically mean that you have to get married, okay? Sometimes this is where people uh, feel like, okay, well, I'm not married, so uh, I'm going to get the short end of the stick here. No, you don't, have to, you don't have to be married to live in community and have these kinds of relationships. After all, Jesus himself wasn't married, right? And according to 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul was either unmarried or he was a widower, Okay, so you can be single and be fulfilled as a Jesus follower. Okay, before I got married, I was a man on a mission and I loved my life. I wanted to get married and I, and I pursued the mess out of Priscilla. Okay, but when I was single, I wasn't just sitting out, sitting around at home, just moping around, feeling sorry for myself. I was doing God's will for my life, and I was fulfilled as a single person, okay? 
if you can be fulfilled as a single person, you can be fulfilled as a married person. If you can't be fulfilled as a single person, you won't be fulfilled as a married person. Okay? There are other ways to have vulnerable, transparent, life-giving friendships outside of marriage. But today, this message is about marriage, and most of you, at some point, will probably be married. So, uh, John Mark Comer, he goes on to say this, In the wedding ceremony, God says they became one flesh. That word one is ikad in Hebrew. It's a graphic, weighty word. When you combine it with the word flesh, it basically means fused together at the deepest levels. And the exact same word is used for God. Okay? The ancient Hebrews had a prayer called the Shema that was the epicenter of Israel's faith. You've heard it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he uses the Hebrew word ikad. Okay? God is fused together at the deepest levels, okay? And in marriage, we catch glimpses and hints and shadows of that kind of oneness when we come together with the one God has brought into our life. Ecclesiastes 4, uh, 9 through 12 says this, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Verse 12. If one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Pastor, marriage involves two people, so why are you quoting a scripture that says a cord of three strands is not easily broken? Are you telling me that I need to go out and find another woman? Are you telling me I need to go find another man? Absolutely not. Of course not. God is the third cord that we're talking about in this scripture. Okay? A healthy marriage involves two people pursuing companionship with Jesus as they're pursuing each other. Okay? You have to have that three-stranded cord in order to have a healthy marriage. If you take God out of the equation, you will not be able to have uh, God's best in your marriage. And when we pursue companionship with God as we're pursuing companionship with our spouse, that is when we have a healthy marriage. Marriage at its healthiest, okay? Ephesians 5, 24 and 25, this is Paul speaking. He says this, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. I like how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation. Wives, understand and support your husband in ways that show your support for Christ. The husbands provide leadership to his wife, or the husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should, sub, should likewise submit to their husbands. This model of marriage, the biblical model of marriage, is unattainable if both spouses are not pursuing 
companionship with Christ. Okay? And where I'm about to go in this portion of the message, this can get the women, uh, historically, this can get women mad and shouting down the preacher, but in a negative way. Okay? And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to attempt to to break down this passage, okay, uh, and, and in a way that empowers everybody, okay? So it's much harder for a woman to submit to her husband in their marriage, okay, if her husband isn't loving her the way Christ loved the church, okay? Men, we need to get this. Christ, uh, he, he exemplified a selfless, sacrificial love. Not a selfish love, not a domineering love, not a my way or the highway type of love. It was a selfless, sacrificial type of love. It was a love that puts the other party above themselves. Okay? And so Paul is very clear that's how husbands are to love their wives. Okay? And in the same way, it is much harder for a husband to fully love their wife the way Christ loved the church if she doesn't submit to her husband's leadership the way the church is supposed to be submitted to Christ. Okay? That's what the Bible says. That's not what I'm saying. So don't get mad at me. Okay? This is what Scripture teaches. And I do want to say and clarify that because of the leadership put on a man, because of the leadership put on a husband, I believe that there is a heftier responsibility on the man to love his wife, okay, than there is on the wife to submit to her husband, okay? Uh, Just like I have a heftier responsibility and accountability to this church because I lead this church than you guys, husbands, we have a heftier and and greater accountability to how we lead our families and how we lead our, our spouses, okay? And let me also make this clear. When, when it talks about the gender roles within the marriage, that stays within the marriage, okay? This isn't, uh, you know, you don't take this to the workplace and, and apply this to the work. That's not what the Bible is teaching. This is for the marriage. This, this is within the context of marriage where these roles take place. Uh, gender roles within marriage can be very controversial and very confusing, okay? Okay. And let's be honest, this passage rubs a lot of women the wrong way. And I think a lot of it probably has to do with men absolutely abusing this scripture and taking it completely out of context and using it in a way to dominate their spouses. Okay, or using it out of context and bringing it into another arena of life and having some sort of entitlement that is completely unbiblical and misuse of Scripture. When you talk about the role of husband and wife, the question always arises about what that actually looks like. Is the woman supposed to just do whatever her husband wants? How do you deal with decision-making within the marriage? Is it do as the man says and that's just how it is? What does it actually look like? Well, how does it play out in the context of marriage? Is this what submission is? In the book, The Meaning of Marriage, Kathy Keller, who is the wife of Tim Keller, who planted and pastored, uh, pastored Redeemer Presbyterian Church right here in Manhattan for many years, uh, she 
uh, she talks about in this book the principles that her and Tim, her husband, live by in, in their marriage when it comes to decision-making and, and gender roles. And as I was reading this, this is exactly how Priscilla and I live our lives and, and, and how we function within our marriage. And so she put it so well that I just want to, I just want to lay out the guidelines that they live by and, and I, I, I want to go by those guidelines, and I think it's going to help clarify uh, what Paul was actually talking about in this passage when it comes to decision-making and gender roles within the marriage. And uh, so there are four guidelines that she and Tim live by, and so uh, let, let's look at the first one. Um, the husband's authority, like Christ's authority over us, the church, is never used to please himself but only to serve the interests of his wife. Being the head does not mean the husband makes all the decisions and gets his way in every disagreement. Okay? Men, we don't get to pull the husband card and tell our wives to submit. You need to submit, woman, every time we get into an, a disagreement or we don't see eye to eye on a disagreement. We don't just get to say, well, I'm the man, so I must be right. We don't get to pull the man card and do that. Okay, everything Jesus did was to benefit and lift up his bride, who is the church, for her benefit and for her well-being. Okay, and so we are to function the way Jesus functioned in our marriages. We don't get to use our authority to, to demand sex from our spouse, even though we did nothing to cherish our wives, even though we did nothing to romance our wives, even though we did nothing to love our wives and to lead our wives. And we don't just get to walk into the house and say, get in bed, woman. <laughs> we don't get to do that. And you know what? If I did that to my wife, she'd look at me like I was stupid. <laughs> and, she would, and she would say, you know, you're, you're actually not even sleeping in the same bed as me today. You're, you'll sleep in the couch. You know what I mean? So, men, we don't get to do that. We don't get to respond to our wives in this way. We don't get to pull out the man card and start dominating, okay? Romans 15.3 says, For even Christ didn't live to please himself. Guideline number two, A wife is never to be merely compliant, but is to use her resources to empower. Okay? She is to be her husband's most trusted friend and counselor as he is to her. To complement each other means husband and wife need to hear each other out and make their arguments. Completion is hard work and involves loving contention with affection until you sharpen, enrich, and enhance each other. She must bring every gift and resource she has to the discussion, and he must, as any wise manager, know when to allow her expertise to trump his own less well-informed opinion. Men, we need to be humble enough and we need to be smart enough to know when we need to listen to our wives. When we need to say, you know what? In this decision, in this area, she is, she is way smarter than me. She is way more equipped than me. She is much more of an, much more of an expert than me. And so in this area, I'm going to listen to what she has to say because she just knows better, okay? Some men, they're so machismo, they're so full of pride that they can't 
ever say, you know what, my wife is just, I'm just going to admit it, she's just smarter than me in this area. She's just better than me in this area. She's just a better leader than me in this area. And so I'm going to submit to that area to her. Okay? It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's, not a, it's not an area of weakness in a man. It's actually an area of strength that we can actually admit this thing. Guideline number three. This is huge, huge, okay? Women, I need an offering after this, okay? A wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. A wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. Only your creator and savior deserves that from you, okay? Peter said in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, a wife should not obey or aid her husband in doing anything that God forbids. Okay? For example, if your husband is asking you to lie on your tax return, you should not obey him because that's illegal. And the Bible says not to lie and cheat. Okay? You're not being a submissive wife when you do that. Or if a husband beats his wife, the best thing a wife can do is to forgive him in her heart. Okay? And then have him arrested. Okay, that's the most loving thing you can possibly do. Guideline number four, assuming the role of headship is only done for purposes of ministering to your wife and family. How does this authority work out in the context of two human beings made in the image of God who are equal in dignity and being? The answer is the head can only overrule a spouse if he is sure that her choice would be destructive to her or the family. He does not get to use his headship selfishly to get his own way. When the husband wants to buy a bigger TV and the wife is like, but we need this for the home. He does not get to overrule her because he is the head of the home. That is an abuse of the responsibility of a husband. He does not get to use his headship to always have the remote control in his hand, okay? That's not, the, that's not proper use of headship. He does not get to use his headship to get out of washing the dishes or cleaning a meal or, do, or picking up after himself. That is a misuse. Pick up your own dirty underwear, man, okay? Wash a dish. If you're, see here, this is how me and Priscilla function. I hate cooking. It drains me. I just, I'm not a good cook. I don't like it at all. But what we do is Priscilla does all the cooking, but I do all the dishwashing, okay? I wash the dishes because she hates washing dishes. She would much rather cook than wash dishes. And so I wash the dishes and she cooks and it's a great happy medium, okay? It's not, it's not beneath us, men, okay, to mop a floor or to wash a dish or to do some laundry, okay? Actually, you might... You, I'm just going to be honest. You might get lucky a little bit more often if you would do some of these things, okay? We, we're real up in here, okay? Simply being male does not entitle us to get our way for everything. Can I get an amen? Okay, women, you're not amening me enough. Am I not preaching? Uh, am I not empowering you enough? All right, so what happens if you and your spouse cannot come to a decision that both of you can agree on? 
And let me say this. If the husband is loving his wife the way Christ loved the church and the wife is submitting to the husband the way the church is supposed to submit uh, to Christ, you should not run into this very often with the big things in life. But sometimes you're at a stalemate and it happens, okay? And if you're in that place, then this is where the one that the Bible calls head takes the accountability and takes the responsibility, okay? Both parties submit to their role. And let me be honest, there are a lot of men that don't like this responsibility. They don't like that the buck stops with them. But, the, but, but, but they have to be obedient to Scripture, okay? The situation could be chaotic, but here we are called to act out the drama of redemption, where the son voluntarily gives the headship to the father, saying, Not my will, but thine be done. We don't understand fully why Christ had to give up the authority to his father, but we do know that it was a mark of his greatness, not a mark of his indecisiveness or weakness. When we think about Christ saying, not my will, but your will, okay? That was not a mark of Christ's weakness. We always look to that, and we always look to Christ's greatness because of that. Amen? Before we, and if I could have the, man, I'm only going to get through one point today. My wife preached for an hour last week, but uh, uh, I'm not going to do that this week. So can I have the worship team up? Uh, but it was an amazing message, so was, I listened to it on the podcast, so I'm sure it did not even feel like an hour. <clears throat> Before we moved here to plant our church, uh, we were living in Texas, and actually we had an opportunity to lead a brand new church in another part of the city. We had the opportunity to do that, and it was a great opportunity. They had a pretty large launch team. They had a pretty large budget. They had their own building. Uh, they, they were, you know, they were pretty stable for being a, a launch. Uh, they had a lot of resources. They also had a building. And we had two options. Option number one was to move to New York City right away and to help lead this church. They had an interim pastor, but they were looking for a, a permanent pastor. And so option number one was to, we we're still on staff at that church. We were youth and young adults pastors. So we could move right away, come up to New York City and help help with this church, or we could stay for another year, help transition the new youth pastor to take my place, and start from scratch. And so Priscilla and I, we had these options, and so we came together, and uh, we said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fast and pray for a week, and at the end of the week, we're going to meet together with, my, with our decision. So for a week, we fasted, we prayed, we didn't talk about it at all. We didn't talk about New York City at all. So at the end of the week, Priscilla and I, we went to Payway, and uh, we had dinner. We broke our fast, and uh, so we, we ended up writing our, our answers on those napkins right then and there, and leading up to this, for those of you that know my wife, you know my wife is a very uh, strong-willed leader. She's very opinionated, so I knew she was going to come into dinner with an opinion. And uh, from what she had communicated with me already, I knew she wanted to move to New York City right away. She, she, uh, I love New York City, but she really loves New York City. So she was ready to get out of Texas and to move to the city. So I knew she wanted to move 
uh, right away. And so we had dinner, and I said, are you ready for your, for, to, to reveal our answers? And so we wrote it down on our napkin, and we exchanged napkins. You know, I put that I felt like we needed to stay for another year and then move and start the church from scratch. And I was like, here we go, Lord. I don't know how we're going to hash this sucker out. But when I opened up her napkin, I was really surprised because it just had one scripture on it. And it was Ruth 1.16. And Ruth 1.16 says this, Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She said that's the only thing God spoke to her all week long. And I share that to say this, living by these principles can work beautifully if we'll trust God with our spouse. If we'll stop trying to control every situation, if we'll stop trying to domineer every situation, if we'll stop trying to create our image, our spouse in our own image, if we try, if we stop trying to always change our spouse and go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, change me. And we live by these, these principles. They don't have to be these oppressive. That, that, that scripture doesn't have to be oppressive. That scripture doesn't have to be like, I believe everything about the Bible, but I just kind of ignore that. Like Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. And, I, and, and God has something so much better for our marriages. He wants our marriages to be a reflection of his glory to the world. He wants our marriages to be a reflection of how he loves us. He wants people to look at our marriages and want to know Jesus. Okay? It's so much more, it's so much deeper than just, I want my spouse to make me happy and to fulfill me and to compliment me and to meet all my needs. That is, that, that is too low of, a, of, a, of an idea of marriage. That, that, that's, you're, you're going way too low if you're defining marriage by that. God has something greater. God has something so much better than just that. And so I hope I helped clarify some stuff. Hopefully the women aren't mad at me. Hopefully the men aren't mad at me. Hopefully we get a better idea of what marriage is. Man, I only got through one point today. We'll uh, hopefully do the rest next week. Can we all, can we all stand? Let's pray.